Welcome to the first episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. Today, we will be talking about the Enlightenment era and its benefits. Enjoy. It, economically speaking, of the day. Mercantilism? Mercantilism. So we're going to be critical of mercantilism. What's the it politically of the day? In Europe, we're talking in Europe here. Well, actually, around the world too. Feudalism, church, those are a big part of society, yeah. But when you're talking about who's governing, it's... Absolutism, right? So and we'll talk more about that as we get to the Atlantic Revolution. But it's one powerful king that's organizing all the mercantilism, organizing all the politics and everything that's going on. Absolutism there, right? So we want to make changes to that. And that's what they're going to propose here. All right, so... These guys that we're talking about are called philosophers. If you see that word, it's a philosopher from the Enlightenment time period. Oh, it just kind of looks like philosopher without the R. But the philosophers are enlightened philosophers. Probably the easiest thing to do. And mainly, this is a French movement. You've heard Paris referred to as the city of light. It's not because it has more light per square inch than any of the cities. It's because this is the center of the Enlightenment movement where all these thinkers came from. And they gathered at these things called salons. What? Salons. Yeah, salons. It's a meeting place. A gathering. Not like a hair salon. It's actually kind of weird. You know, the hair salon actually gets its word from that. From a gathering and meeting place. Well, barber shops are different. A barber in the medieval time was anybody that was good with scissors and sharp, like surgeons. Barber would have been more like a surgeon in the medieval times. Well, I guess that translates into being good with scissors and cutting hair. So, barber shops. That's why when you go to a barber shop, it has kind of that spinny red pole. That was an old medical sign. So no barbershops really have that anymore, but they're like they don't really have that as much today, but that was kind of the Come traditional barbershop. I'm sorry, Dad, forgive me. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, natural laws, but we don't know about that. Now, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. So, these guys are have competing viewpoints when it comes to types of government. They both kind of talk about different things. John Locke talks about natural rights and how government's main job is to protect these natural rights of people. People should have certain liberties, they should have certain freedoms, and really the government should be probably made up of people to help protect them. That's the number one job of government. It's there to serve the people and protect their natural rights. And he says these natural rights are life, liberty, and property. And those are the three things that government should protect at all times. All right? Now, Thomas Hobbes says something a little bit different. He says it's the stupidest thing on the planet to give people decisions and to give people liberties because people don't know and can't really operate making decisions. 
What I mean by that is, he says people by are inherently nasty, brutish, greedy, violent people. And if we let all of those people make decisions, it's going to be chaos, civil war, people are going to be taking from each other and all those kind of things. They can't be trusted with something like decision making. That has to be in the hands of one capable person, an absolutist if you want to call it that, and his job, he calls this a social contract, his job is to use that power to make a, provide safety and security for the people. And the people's job in the social contract is they give up their liberty, they give up their decision making in return for the safety and security. So it's kind of a symbiotic relationship between the leaders and people. That's what Thomas Hobbes says. So a little bit different there, all right? And that's what we just talked about, so we don't have to spend too much time on that. All right? Now, John Locke, obviously being Republican, constitutionalist Americans that we are, not like Republican, Democrat, but in favor of a republic, are gonna be more on John Locke's side, because our founding fathers pretty much took all of what John Locke said and put it in the Declaration of Independence. All right, Thomas Jefferson, instead of saying life, liberty, and property, says life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And words like consent of the governed and all that kind of stuff, and this stuff of overthrowing government, that's all straight from John Locke. All right, so this is during the Enlightenment time period. All right, we'll get more to that in a little bit. But the reason why this is so relevant is our founding fathers were part of these Enlightened philosophical movement people. Yes? Right, right. That's why I use the word Republican there. Not in favor of a certain political party, but saying that we're a republic. We are a federal democratic republic. Alright, so some of these key figures of the Enlightenment. One of them is this guy named Diderot. He does several things, but mainly makes the encyclopedia. And that's big because the goal of the Enlightenment is to enlighten people, bring information, that kind of stuff. This is, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but this makes it where information is available to the masses of the people. It's like a Google of the 1700s here, all right? Because before this, information was hard to come by. Books even are kind of hard to come by. But he makes this pretty accessible to at least a lot of people. All right, so that's a big group for the Enlightenment there. He also writes several things about, you know, the Enlightenment's big on things like toleration, all right, uh, particularly religious toleration, taking away things that make people go crazy and fight people. And coming out of the 1600s, the biggest thing that made people fight each other was religion. So getting away from that kind of stuff. He and Voltaire are two big ones with that. All right, Hobbes Locke, that's a comparison. You can look at that a little later on. That's something for your reference. Now, politically speaking, the biggest guy here is a guy named Montesquieu. And Montesquieu talks about you know, several different levels of government. He says you know, there's certain governments that are good for certain places. The ideal form of government, he says, is some kind of government where <coughs> power is not in the hands of one person, but it's divided among three different branches. And these branches each have different roles. 
One is to legislate, to make laws. One is to execute and to make sure these laws are being executed and carried out. And one is to judge, to interpret laws. And each of these branches should have independent powers from each other, but also checks over each other and balances to make sure that no one gets more powerful than the other. All right? Now, that sounds familiar to us, obviously, because that's what we do. And our Constitution, Articles 1, 2, and 3, all came from Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws. All right? So, yeah, you could say the French created our Constitution, that possibly. All right? Because he's French. But you can see that our founding fathers, the people that made our Constitution and these kind of things, were very well read in the Enlightenment movement. And those ideas have a huge impact over things like the American Revolution, the French Revolution, all of these kinds of things. Right? Because the French Revolution is really divided into three different phases. The age of Montesquieu, the age of Rousseau, which we'll talk about just a little bit, and the age of Voltaire, which we'll talk about just a little bit. All right? Now, economically speaking, Adam Smith. Um, this is a guy to remember here. You've probably we've talked about him a little bit here. But Adam Smith is going to pretty much be the end of mercantilism. His goal, he attacks mercantilism here because if we're trying to bring equality and if we're trying to, I guess, provide a natural order of things, economically speaking, we can't follow the laws of mercantilism because mercantilism well, I don't know. You tell me why. Why is mercantilism against the natural laws when applied to economics? Think about mercantilism and tell me why. What would natural laws of economics be? And how does mercantilism conflict with those? Deep questions on a Tuesday morning. Yes, ma'am. Um, not hundred percent sure, but. You don't have to be. So with mercantilism, you're always going to be exporting a lot more than what you're going to be importing, and natural law kind of, most of the stuff should be balanced? Okay, possibly. What should be balanced in natural laws of economics? Um, the money, like spread out almost. Okay, and how do we do that? But add to that here, Sydney. Who controlled it? The silver. Spain. Okay. What was the result? And maybe the most suffered the most drawback from it, right? But it was all the government that controlled that, right? So follow that theme. Yes. So if the government doesn't control it, because mercantilism is all government, state sponsor, everything. All right. So mercantilism is you know exporting with the importing, as Madeline said, and all of these things, which is not inherently bad, but that's not that's that's not necessarily natural law economically, because government is pretty much saying under mercantilism you have to trade this amount 
and this is who you can trade it with. It creates tariffs and taxes and all these kind of things to make sure somebody is trading with somebody else. Colonies with mother country. For example, if I'm England, all right, and Kevin is the 13 colonies of the New World, all right, or let's just say he's a cotton producer in Virginia, okay? Kevin would like to sell that cotton for a pretty good price. That's how he makes his living, right? Well, Ethan over here is Spain, all right? Trevor over here is France. Ethan over here is, well, I'm England, so you could be, well, he's Spain, France. You're Prussian, all right? So, if Kevin wants to get top dollar for his cotton, what's he going to do? Right, he's going to go to Trevor, he's going to go to Ethan, he's going to go to the other Ethan, or one of the other Ethans, and he's going to say, whoever pays the most, you got it. Bidding war. All right, that's the natural laws of supply and demand. Okay, now mercantilism controls the supply and controls the demand because I, as England, am going to tell my colony, Kevin, I need this much cotton. And you cannot trade it to anybody but me because I'm going to put huge tariffs on any export going to Spain, to Prussia, or to France. So they're going to have to pay double what England has to pay. So, how much am I going to pay for Kevin's cotton? Bottom dollar, right? So Kevin suffers here. Cotton is super cheap for me. And then I'm going to go produce all this cotton into textiles. And then who am I going to sell my textiles to? Prussia. Whoever I want, but to Kevin. And then I'm also going to say, Kevin, whose textiles do you like the most? Wrong answer. You don't have a choice. I'm going to put tariffs on Trevor's textiles, Ethan's textiles, and Ethan's textiles so that those are going to cost you three times what my textiles cost. So whose textiles are you buying? Mine. And you don't have a choice. Do you understand why the colonists were so upset with England in 1776? All right? So Adam Smith says that's dumb because all we're doing is hindering and hurting trade. We should take this whole government mercantile control out of the system and let supply and demand be the guide and these natural laws for the economy. And he says, instead of the government, because he says, government, laissez-faire, let it be, leave it alone, hands off. All right, don't touch it, government, the economy he's talking about. Instead, it should be the invisible hand. And he says the invisible hand is what controls the economy. And the invisible hand is everybody pursuing their own self-interest. That's what's going to keep things operating. Kevin, if he has a cotton textile industry, is going to be producing the best, most efficient cotton at the best price and making the best product. Because if he doesn't, you know, it's his own self-interest to do that, Trevor's going to take over his business. It's truly a survival of the fittest mentality when it comes to economics. There's no support for poor cotton producers. There's no support for any certain governments. If you have the best product, you survive. Truly survival of the fittest. Now, who's going to like this going into the 1800s? Because by the 1800s, 
Mercantilism is gone. We are in the age of capitalism. Pure capitalism. No government interference whatsoever. That's not what we have today. We have somewhat capitalism. But the government has a huge say in what goes on. All right? Now, in the 1800s, it's not the case. Because we're in the age of who? What social class? Who's dominating in the 1800s? This is a little foreshadowing, but tell me. Who's going to love this economic mentality? Oh, all right, let's think of it this way. Who benefits in mercantilism? Government. Governments? Who is in the government? Nobles. Nobles, aristocrats, those people. Well, in the 1800s, who's going to benefit the most? And the merchants represent what class? Uh, not the peasants. Nobility. What do we call the middle class? Have we used this term yet? Bourgeois, no. What did you say? Me? Bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie, that's exactly right. Have you said, Kevin? All right, exactly. That's a word that you need to add to your vocabulary here. We're talking about social classes. All right? The bourgeoisie. Okay? So. I don't know. The bourgeoisie. It's like the middle peasant class and like the French Revolution. That's what I said. Oh, bourgeoisie. Yeah, okay. Borgios, yeah. Alright, now, this class, this is made up of merchants, business owners, factory owners, as industrialization comes around. <coughs> this class dominates the 1800s because when we go to survival of the fittest in capitalism, this is the fittest class. They are the educated, hardworking, they have some capital, they have business, and they have those kind of things. They're smart, they're clever, they're frugal. They are very good business owners and merchants and traders and commerce. They're good at all that stuff. So when the government stops helping the aristocrats and stops giving all these favors to the clergy, like tax exemptions and those kind of things, this class benefits the most from that. So they are big proponents of laissez-faire, leave it alone, let us just go make our money. That's this bourgeoisie class. And they are emerging. They're going to be hugely instrumental in the American Revolution. All of these founding fathers that we know of, they are bourgeoisie. All, right? All of the people that instigate the French Revolution, bourgeoisie. Not the Haitian Revolution, those are slaves. But everywhere else, a lot of these other Latin American revolutions, a lot of those are instigated by the bourgeoisie. Why do you think the bourgeoisie are instigating these revolutions? I've just told you some of it. Who's suffering the most in the American colonies? Colonists. The colonists and the bourgeoisie see an opportunity to make more money. Revolt. Create a new government. Who are the ones reading all of these Enlightenment ideals? You think the peasants are reading? No. That's not something peasants do, right? These guys are. These guys are going to universities, they're learning, they're educated. 
So they see other ideas out there about government. Thomas Jefferson, you think he came up with the idea of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? He read it from John Locke, because he's a good bourgeoisie member who's well-read and well-educated. The James Madison, the guys that created our Constitution, they didn't just fabricate that in their mind, they read about it from this guy. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So this bourgeoisie class are starting to put a lot of this into action. Yes, ma'am. Um, so the uh, bourgeoisie class, are they American colonists or in, in England or both? Everywhere. Everywhere. This is, a, this is the middle class. Middle class. <laughs> and when I say middle class, it's not like the middle class today. Yeah. These are the people that are really wealthy without aristocratic titles. Okay. Which is a big deal in the 1700s because aristocratic titles give you a lot of privilege that these bourgeoisie don't have. Alright? So the bourgeoisie, super wealthy. Where the term bougie comes from? That's exactly where it comes from. Alright. So, Voltaire. Um, Voltaire probably is the biggest of the enlightened philosophers, not stature speaking, but influential speaking. Um, the most well-known renowned. He's known for his writings and, and all these kind of things. Very cynical and critical, particularly of the Catholic Church. He's kind of a big secular movement. Not anti-religion, not anti-Christian. Well, no anti-religion maybe, but not anti-Christian, but big with deism. All right? Deism is that mentality of God not intervening on a day-to-day -day basis, but creates things, lets the natural laws take over. Alright? So, no need for really a church, a Roman Catholic church, and all that's really done is led to corruption and abuse, is what he would say. So, freedom of the press and freedom of expression and all that stuff, that's all Voltaire. He's big on all that. He's famous for the quote, uh, I wholly, uh, I disagree with what you have to say, but I fully support your right to say it. You know, stuff, mentality like that. All right? And then deism, this is the approach to religion. It was described to me as God as the cosmic clockmaker. He winds it all up at the beginning when he creates it, and then steps back and lets it take away. <coughs> but doesn't intervene on a day-to-day -day basis. All right? Now, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, still looped in with the Enlightenment, but kind of different as far as, because these Enlightenment figures are all Stoics. What I mean by that is, they take emotion out of everything. Rationality is the biggest thing for these guys, rational. That means you take emotion out of all decision-making. Rousseau talks a little bit more about how you should embrace your emotions in the decision-making process. He's going to be a bridge into what's called the romantic movement. But um, he talks a lot about some of the enlightened figures of Republic. He comes up with his own social contract, which is pretty much between the general will of the people. That's his big buzzword, is the general will. The majority versus the minority, and how sometimes the minority have to give up some of their rights for the good of the people. And he talks about this thing called the noble savage. He says, nothing is so gentle as a man in his primitive state when placed by nature at equal distance from the stupidity of brutes and the fatal enlightenment of civil man. Meaning, 
don't be corrupted by society civilization. That's the idea of a noble savage. He says, we are born, man is born free, yet everywhere is enchained by social constructs, Roman Catholic Church, whatever it might be. Rousseau is a little bit different, but he's a big figure, particularly when we get to the French Revolution. His ideas are going to be big in the French Revolution. All right? So that's it today for that. We're going to introduce, well, we're not done yet. We're going to introduce setups to the Atlantic Revolutions. All right? Now, all we need to do with this is what are we revolting against? Alright, so absolutism. And you don't even have to write this down. You already know this. This is a recap. If you want to write stuff down, you can, but you don't have to. Alright? Absolutism. Somebody give me a description. One ruler. One ruler that makes calls all shots. And they are in charge of economy with mercantilism. It's all state governed, state sponsored, state controlled. Religion, state controlled, all these kind of things. What do I need to do if I'm an absolutist? Keep control, but how do I do that? Who am I taking control from? Not the people, the nobles. I have to control the peasants, control the nobles, and create a big army. Now, the way that some of these guys did this, Philip II, who was he? Spanish king, right? What's he most known for? He was after Columbus, after Reconquista. So he was the big... Alright, so Philip's goals. You can say that Philip was both the most successful and biggest failure as a leader in history for a couple reasons. One, he rules at the height of Spanish power. He's the one who uh, makes sure that all that silver is mined out of Spain. But he's also the one that spends all that silver on a conquest, a crusade, to Catholicize the world and build the biggest armada. Well... He fails in that because he loses his armada to the British. He fails to spread Catholicism when the Dutch kick him out. And all the silver's gone by the time he dies. So he's kind of a big failure. All right? But that's what he's known for. Now, in England, absolutism looks like they're not going England's different, right? They have parliament. Never going to be absolutist. The Tudors, Henry VIII is the most famous here. He does a good job of consolidating religion, politics, into one power. He's the one that does that. That's his version of that. <coughs> All right? Which is a lot of power in England there. But Elizabeth has to kind of work with Parliament a little bit more. Now, the biggest model here, Louis XIV. He sets up the system of absolutism in France that's going to be revolted against later on. They actually revolted with Louis XVI. But Louis XIV starts all this, right? So... Louis XIV, how does he take on the nobles? We talked about the following of Louis XIV, right? They couldn't be mean to a child. Well, that's true. Actually, no, they were. So when Louis takes over, there's a huge rebellion of the nobles called the Fronde. And the first 10 years of his life, Louis, it's actually his, he's, he has a regent called Cardinal Mazarin, who is fighting these nobles. So Louis learns early on, I have to control these nobles. They're going to get out of control pretty quickly. All right? How does he do that? He's not five in this picture. 
That'd be hype. His father was king. And all of his grandfather was king. So when his dad dies, he becomes king at a young age. He's not old enough to rule, so he has a region that rules for called Lazarus. Exactly. Palace in Versailles is how he controls the nobles. How does a palace control nobles? They all live there, and while they're here, they're not elsewhere um, stirring up problems, stirring up troubles, right? And he can keep his eye on them. All right? So, <coughs> Peter the Great, how does he control nobles? Exactly. Get rid of the old ways, westernize, modernize, get rid of your beers. All right? Catherine the Great expands territory. We haven't talked about her much yet. She's with the Enlightenment in Russia, expanding territory to warm water ports. That's her goal there. But all of these very big, powerful, influential figures. Now, revolutions. Some of these are going to be, we're looking, we're going to see really three different degrees of revolutions. All right? The American Revolution probably has the least amount of change of any of the revolutions we're going to talk about. It seems kind of weird to talk about because we have an entirely new government that comes out of this. But really, the same people that were in charge before are in charge after. There's not really a lot of social change there. Small political change. We'll talk about that a little later. The French Revolution and then all the revolutions of 1830, 1848, those kind of areas, we don't see a lot of political sustaining change. We go through a lot of change. But the same families in control at the beginning in 1789 are in control at the end in 1815. They take back over. The ruling absolutist Bourbon family. Now there's a lot of change in between. But there's a huge amount of social change and economic change. And then the Haitian Revolution is the only successful slave revolt in history. So a lot of social change is there. All right? So we'll get to that later. Now we'll save the North American Revolution. I think we're ready for that tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In our next episode, Coach Elrod will be talking about the North American Revolution. Thank you.